All right, you guys, we have a monster episode today. This is, I mean, I know I've said this before, but this is probably one of the, the most the most excited I've been to release an episode, to be perfectly honest. And it's not because the guest is well-known. It's not because I think this is going to get a fucking huge bump or spike in numbers. I think it's going to do well, but it is because of the content of this show. The content of this show is basically diving into a deep dive of what my brain and personal history is. And, uh, you know, I had heard about Dr. Patino before. He's been practicing medicine for over 30 years, born in Mexico, and uh, came to the States as a medical doctor and working in psychiatry. He's also one of the first psychiatrists to start using ketamine-assisted therapy for depression and anxiety. So a lot to cover there, and we dive into that. But what's cool is he takes a, a very broad approach to how he analyzes his patients. And I did four fucking hours of grueling testing that would normally be spread out over the course of a few days or a few weeks. I crammed it all, I did it all, and after, I think, a short window of chatting with Dr. Patino about his background, we take a deep dive into exactly what my brain looks like from all the fighting, all the football, all the drugs, the bad drugs, not the good ones. And then we dive into some of the good ones. And we really get a deeper perspective through family history and everything that goes on in creating a person and making them who they are in the now. So this is uh, for sure the most revealing podcast I've ever done. Uh, he <laughs> wasn't necessarily sure I wanted to reveal everything, but you know, I do like to share. I like to share with, with you guys, uh, exactly what makes me tick, what I'm learning and what a cool thing to do to have a podcast where we could really take a deep dive into everything that's working inside in between my ears and, uh, not working for that matter. But, uh, it was, it was extremely informative. Very cool. He has a practice out in Chandler, Arizona. And if it's something you're interested in, you can visit him. He does have a, about a four-month wait, but um, he does take people in from out of town. People come from all over the world to see this guy. He is fantastic. He helped my coach, uh, Vince Perez-Mazzola, who was my first striking coach, really get through some deep depression and come off a lot of pharmaceuticals. About 90% of his pharmaceutical meds have been reduced through the work that he's done with Dr. Patino. It's an excellent fucking episode. Please, please write me on Instagram. Let me know what you think of this one at Kingsville on Instagram or Twitter. And also support this show. Support this show by clicking subscribe. Leave us a five-star rating wherever you can. Write one or two ways the show's helped you in life and support our sponsors. We've got some great sponsors today, one of which is brand new. It's a company called Comrade and they make compression socks. Now, as an athlete, I've been using compression socks for many years. It's something that I was turned on to uh, early on by one of my strength and conditioning coaches. Basic principles are if you're pounding, like running or doing anything that's hard and shocking to the body, compression socks can do very good for you because they reduce the stress from that pounding. They don't reduce the training effect. So it's not like taking ibuprofen before a race or high-dose vitamin C. You still get the same training effect, but you increase recovery time. They're also excellent for travel. And as you know, I'm on fucking planes all the time. One of the first times that I used compression socks was flying to Thailand, which was absolutely brutal. And uh, without that, I would have, you know, little smoky sausages for toes if I had not been wearing my compression socks. I learned that on a shorter flight just to the East Coast, having uh, some swelling in my feet. So these are great for all aspects of life. You don't have to be an old geezer to wear them. Um, Comrade Socks was created to find a simple way to feel better and energized every day. 
They're not your average socks. They spent over two years developing smart socks with all-day comfort, style, and certified health benefits. They're designed for everyday wear, so they're the world's most comfortable compression socks. From a padded toe and heel cushion to slide-free cuffs that keep socks in place all day long. They believe compression and comfort go hand in hand. You guys can get a fat 20% discount by heading over to comradesocks.com slash Kyle and use discount code Kyle at checkout. That's comradesocks.com slash Kyle. C-O-M-R-A-D-S-O-C-K-S.com slash K-Y-L-E for 20% off. These guys are phenomenal. I absolutely love them, and I'm happy to have them as one of the show sponsors. Another sponsor for today's show is my dudes from XPT. Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese have put together an all-inclusive app that is absolutely phenomenal. It takes a deep dive into the training and the work that they've developed over the course of a lifetime of being incredible high-end athletes. It's built on the fundamentals of breath, move, recover. XPT's revolutionary approach empowers you to push human boundaries through physical and psychological stressors while encouraging adaptations so that you thrive, not just survive. Professional athletes such as Aaron Rodgers and Kevin Durant, the U.S. military, and Olympic athletes have experienced firsthand the impact of such radical training. The real secret behind the power of XBT is its breathing programming. It encompasses the best techniques from around the world to improve recovery, resilience, and performance in both mind and body. We all breathe to survive, but have you breathed to thrive? Well, I have. And it's incredible. It's one of the reasons why I will always make the trip to Malibu, no matter where I'm at in LA, so I can get a piece of this action by heading over to their house and training. But guess what? You don't have to have access to their house now. You can get CO2 tolerance training and all sorts of cool models in their app for free. All you got to do is go to xptlife.com slash Kyle to download the app today for free. That's xptlife.com forward slash Kyle and download the app today and live limitless. And last but not least, we've got on it on its brand new Hydrocore bag just came out. You can get the best workout anytime anywhere just add water. The Hydrocore bag uses the power of water dynamics to build stability, strength and explosiveness like no other training tool. Fold it up and take it on the road for a workout you can do anytime anywhere, no heavy weights necessary. When you lift the Hydrocore bag, it wants to keep going in whatever direction you were moving. The water inside it sloshes around and your shoulders, hands, hips, and core have to work to stop it from pulling you out of position and breaking form. Overcoming all that inertia builds head-to-toe stability. This is key. So one of the reasons why I do farmer's walks and other shit like that. If you're training your entire body from the ground up with the feet and balances in place, it's also going to train the brain. That's another factor that this can induce. Balance training works the brain because it affects the central nervous system, and this bag does it all. This is the kind of stability you need to hold on to resisting an opponent if you're a fighter, lifting heavier weights if you're a gym rat, and preventing injury if you have a history of low back pain. To learn more, go to onnit.com slash Kyle for 10% off your HydroCorp bag. Thank you guys for tuning in to today's show with Dr. Patino. Let me know what you think on the gram. Visit my website, kingsboo.com, and I'll check back with you in a few days. Dr. Patino. Hi, Kai. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm doing much better now that I've been done with the battery of tests I just completed. Yes. Well, um, kind of the way I want to arc this show today is to get your background in medicine. What drew you into this and uh, what you're doing now here at your practice? 
to help with depression and anxiety and a lot of the mental health issues that we see today. Absolutely. Um, gosh, that's a lot of history. I've been doing this for more than 30 years. So um, I'm originally from Mexico. I was born and raised there from a Mexican father and American mother. So kind of backwards. <laughs> <laughs> I was an American in Mexico growing up. Uh, and um, my father was a physician. My older sister is a physician. So it was kind of a natural thing for me to to go into medicine. So I went to medical school in Mexico. Eventually came to California. I was in UCI 1982. Okay, I went to UCI to do a year of uh, family medicine. So completed that year, went back to Mexico. They didn't want to be in medicine anymore. <laughs> so I came back to the United States in 85, here to Arizona. I had some contacts here and I actually wanted to be a hospital administrator. That was my, I was more into the business side of medicine than necessarily getting into medicine itself. Uh, but they sent me to psychiatry and I found it really fascinating. Uh, I found it fascinating for a number of reasons. Uh, that was at the beginning of the um, biological revolution in psychiatry, when everything was supposed to be medications and biology. But I also got a lot of training in psychoanalytic and cognitive behaviors, behavioral issues. So that really helped me kind of frame myself a little better in terms of what I wanted to do. Uh, and you need to understand in terms of age, I went to medical school when I was 17 years old. So graduated <laughs> when I was 21. So by the time I came here in, in 85, I was already a doctor for three or four years. I was 25 years old. So that is kind of the age I know this now is an age when you're kind of starting to mature. Actually, brain-wise, your brain stops maturing fast around age 25. So when we when we talk about teenage years, we're talking about very immature biological brain issues, right? So I then I went into, into psychiatry, completed my residency, and I've been practicing since 88. Um, and I've done a lot of things. I mean, I pretty much, if there's something to be done in psychiatry, I've done it in terms of inpatient work, outpatient work, forensic work. I work uh, quite a bit uh, on uh, death penalty cases with psychiatric patients. Uh, but I've always been interested in the brain in particular, in terms of what is the relation between our brain and our behavior. So a lot of the things that we do now have to do with trying to provide the patient understanding of what is happening, because we find that medicine has turned a lot into directiveness, meaning this is what you have and this is what you should take, right? Mm -hmm. Versus uh, I have a human being in front of me who is in pain, whether it's physically or emotionally, who wants options, right? And yeah. I, I perceive the role of a doctor more as a provider of options, you know, that the patient has to exercise. So we really look into, okay, so this is what we think you have. These are the options available. Which one do you want, right? More comprehensively in a biological, psychological, and social way. So we, we recognize, and we have recognized for a while that really in... In behavioral health, in psychiatry, biology is about a third. The other two thirds is your social environment and your psychology, you know, your experience, your way of dealing with stuff. And I think that we have been kind of 
to some degree, dishonest, I think, over the last 30 years of telling people, if you take this medication, your life is going to change. And and that that needs to change because people bought it, you know, and people have an expectation now that, well, fix me, right? Give yeah. me a pill so I can do something. And we have moved away from that. So we're trying to not move away from the biological side, we're trying to see how can we use the biological side to improve the psychological and social in the context of the patient having to, to really take the lead and not not the physician. So, yeah, I think if you if it just it's as simple as looking at the track record and seeing kind of the rise in a lot of these medications that are supposed to fix people, and they're not necessarily getting the results that we would hope for. So, I'm I'm, I'm a very strong believer on uh, epigenetics, meaning. We, we're born with certain guides, right, in terms of where we're supposed to go like most mammals do. Uh, I think that our worst enemies are intelligence. I think that we overutilize it to try to understand why instead of understanding how. And um, things have changed a lot over the years, and I think that that's put a lot of pressure on our ability to modify our genetics. So we're putting a lot of stress, I think, in our in our genetic makeup, right? To try to advance to points that end up translating into significant stress, uh, a lot of problems with anxiety, or a lot of problems with uh, sadness, a lot of problems with depression. Some of which, a small percentage, are purely biologically based, but in general. Very seldom you're going to see a psychiatric problem that started out of nothing, right? There's usually something triggering it. So, yeah, it's it's making me rem- it's making me remember the book "Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers" by mm-hmm. Robert Sapolsky, mm-hmm. and just thinking of that, like uh, the zebra gets attacked by a lion, and if it survives, it will very quickly once it's in the clear, just go back to eating grass, maybe get some water, have sex, whatever whatever is in front of it, it's going to go back to doing. Whereas we will replay that event at infinity throughout throughout our day, throughout the weeks that come up, you know, it just always circles back to the thing that we don't wish to relive. And, and to some degree, you see, we, we see that a lot in post traumatic stress disorder. Um, post traumatic stress disorder is really a disorder of memory, in which the normal channels of memory, for example, if you're going to be eaten by an animal. You have to get really scared, right? Naturally, you don't have to think about it. And the memory gets imprinted into your brain, right? And that memory is supposed to be there, right? For the next time that it happens, you can bring it up. But what happens if that memory just keeps repeating itself? That's what we call the flashbacks, you know? So that is where we have to recognize that we have the mechanisms of protection, but sometimes they go away. And they sometimes we have to, to intervene or try to help someone to, to refix that, that memory cycle. Because our memory is there for our own protection, right? It is, it is there to register danger and we're able to recognize it subconsciously so we don't walk into the same path again. But if that system goes wrong, then you start repeating it quite a bit. So, Well, we're here in your office. We just went through, I think, I don't know, four four hours of tests. We, 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 had, we had some pretty, pretty uh, in-depth and some were, were downright exhaustive. We had the 20-minute test that I finished with that I think you weren't allowed to use caffeine or nicotine for. Uh, and, I, and I did have a, some little bit in my system yes. from earlier that um, 
I believe that was to look at ADD or ADHD. Is that correct? Can you talk about all the tests that we did today? And, and we're actually going to dive into that on yes. a very personal level with my results. Well, thank, thank you for the willingness to do that and to, to expose yourself. This is something that most people will never do. So I think that requires a significant degree of maturity and courage. So thank you for that. We run a battery of tests looking at you in basically three different aspects, biological, psychological, and social. So we have to put that in the context of your movie, right? The movie of your life. And I, I tell my students all the time, psychiatric uh, evaluations are like writing the script of a movie. We really have to collect data, you know. So as we do this, we're going to be collecting some data from you in terms of what has happened in the past. So, um so we want to see how your brain is working. We want to see what your coping skills are in terms of how you handle different situations and stress. And we want to see how content you are with your social life, right? How is that, how that's functioning? And um, before we go into the test, because we, we have tests, for example, the Cambridge Brain Sciences test that looks specifically at cognitive abilities. We look at the QB test that looks specifically at attention. And uh, impulsivity, we also looked at tests like the uh, MCMI-4, which is a personality test that looks also at mental illness issues. We did a quality of life inventory. We do a, a SEL-90 that looks specifically at psychiatric symptoms. And then we did a brain map to try to correlate all those other tests to the brain map and see if there's any, any correlation. For us, though, it's important to know a little bit more about you in terms of, okay, so what is happening in the movie of your life? If you if you had a couple of minutes just to tell us, this is what my life has been like. And I'm particularly interested on head injuries. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you got those. Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But, but tell us a little bit more about you. Yeah, I think um, if there were traumatic experiences that I had as a child, it was my parents fought all the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, not, they didn't physically fight one another, but it was physical in the sense of plates were thrown. I remember the uh, corded wall getting ripped or the corded phone getting ripped out of the wall and thrown through a closet door. Uh, cops getting called. Um, and I have, you know, I have a, a, si a sibling who's a year younger than me. And I just remember just seeing her like pretty mortified, you know, in tears. And of course that built a lot of rage inside and I get in a lot of trouble in school. Um, and so I, I enjoyed physical interaction. I fought a lot as a kid. Uh, those were the first moments in my life where I felt peace, oddly enough. And I think now learning about flow states and reading books like Stealing Fire and getting into Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler's work, it makes sense to me because I wasn't thinking about anything else. There were no problems other than what was what was in front of me. And um, played football since I was 10, loved button heads and, and getting dirty uh, on the, as a lineman, and then uh, finished at Arizona State. And as I mentioned to you and people know on this podcast, I had a, a great deal of depression, I think a lot having to do with my childhood, and then also this almost comical chemical uh, <laughs> uh, bath that I was washing myself with. Um, you know, from anti-anxiety medication, as well as, uh, you know, street drugs like cocaine and ecstasy and, and a lot of alcohol, just trying to numb. And um, as I came clean from all that, after a suicide attempt, I started to get clear. And then I had a, I had new drive. You know, I mean, part of the big issue too was 
in my last year of, of going to ASU, I, I knew that I loved football, but looking forward, I didn't want to get a desk job. I didn't want, and that's, again, I say this always, it's not to put down people who have desk jobs. I have a desk job now, but mm -hmm. my point is that that was not a future I wanted for myself. And I certainly didn't want to do what my parents did, which was work on hundred percent commissions and have these high stress jobs where finances control every aspect of happiness. And so, um, still wanting to be an athlete, still wanting to have some level of physical activity and camaraderie. I started uh, training in mixed martial arts and, you know, my, my first striking coach, Vince mm -hmm. Perez Mazzola is in the house listening mm -hmm. in. Shout out to Vince. Um, uh, Vince is a Jeet Kune Do instructor who learned under Dan Asanto, of course, who learned under Bruce Lee. And um, he really gave me the picture of what martial arts could be. And I think that's, that's crucial because a lot of guys that get into, into professional fighting and cage fighting or whatever you want to call it, no holds barred at the time, um, they just want to beat the shit out of people. And for me, there was an element of that. I very much wanted to hurt people and I very much egoically wanted to be the best at something. But at the same time, I was learning this, this idea of self-mastery through martial arts. And Vince, you were the guy that helped me with that big time. You planted that seed. Um, and of course, I took many head injuries through my fight career. I think uh, you alluded to some left temporal activity going on, and that reminded me of one fight in particular with Glover, Glover Teixeira, where I had mentioned before, either on this show or, or someone else's, that that's the only fight where I couldn't remember how to get to the locker room after. And you would get an, an increased suspension from, from the medical director if you said, like, something like, I don't know where the locker room is, right? So yes. in order to not have the long layoff, mm -hmm. I just made small talk with people as I bumped into them all along the way. My coach had already made his way back and I don't know how long it took me, 20 or 30 minutes, but I mean, I got my ass whooped in that fight and I just remember walking around with people like, yeah, that was, that was a tough loss. That's, that's the way it goes sometimes. And then I finally found my way back to the locker room. But for days, I had trouble sleeping. I was incredibly irritable. And, um, you know, rather than fasting and doing hyperbaric oxygen or anything that would help my brain. Instead, I had cocaine and alcohol and shitty food that night. So Correct. I don't imagine that I gave myself the best, you know, post uh, brain injury protocol for that, for that particular fight. Um, that was probably the worst loss that I took in the UFC. Um, but there were, you know, many times in training with Cain Velasquez and, and, you know, other big time heavyweights where I'd, I'd get dung, you know, dinged up and, coach would recognize it in me and, and pull me and make me not not spar or anything like that for a couple of weeks. So I would say there's quite a few head injuries, even though I've never been knocked out cold. I've definitely, um, I've had my bell rung several times. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned a suicide attempt as a point in your life where things changed, where things became different. What was it about that incident that made you handle things differently. Well, you know, I, I, for people who haven't heard or they're new to the show, you can refer to episode 12 as a solo cast where I go into great detail on this. Um, you know, I, I, I had taken all the last of my pills. I think I had like 10, two milligram Xanax and 10, 10 milligram Valium and a few Norcos. And, uh, I remember putting them all in a glass and downing them. And then I drove to the top of parking lot seven at ASU and stripped down naked to jump 
And the security guard, it was like 2 or 3 a.m., he followed me up. He's like, what the hell is this dude? Where's he going? And um, I remember standing there and I had this wash over my body. And it was the first time where I kind of felt something bigger than me talking to me, saying like, hey, it's okay. You're going to be okay. Not yet. And then, of course, I hear the guy saying, hey, what are you doing up there? And And he was like, oh, whoa. You're naked. <laughs> like split second just dropped me back in reality. And I was like, shit. All right. I'm not. All right. I got to talk to this guy. So I threw my robe on and I walked down and all the medication. I don't know if it was working then and it calmed me down, but it certainly, I mean, that's, that's the last I remembered. I woke up um, in a hospital and my parents and my sister had flown in from California. This was here in Arizona, obviously. And I asked my mom, why are the nurses being such assholes? And she was like, well, you weren't very nice to them. And I was like, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, so I I spent, I think, like a week in uh, what my mom calls the loony bin. Mm -hmm. And there was, you know, people there with real problems. And Mm -hmm. and not that I didn't have my own problems, but there was a lot of people that I got to see who had been through a lot who were looking at me like, why the fuck are you here? Mm -hmm. You know, like you've got your whole family's here. Mm -hmm. You're an athlete. You have an education. You have so much going for you. I don't understand why you're here. And and even though that didn't really set in at the time, it started to creep in like, oh, okay, I do have, I do have the ball rolling in the right Mm. direction with a lot of things like that. I have a lot of things to be gratitude or to have uh, gratitude for. And um, I think I I gave me space. I knew I didn't want to take medication. And at that point I saw a psychiatrist and a psychologist the psychologist, I th- and, and I think I'd mentioned this before the podcast, when I was seven, I went to my first therapist and um, I really enjoyed him. And it was out in California. I felt like I had someone I could talk to. So in my mind, I was looking forward to talking to the psychologist because that's the guy that, that I can iron shit out with. Right. Whereas a psychiatrist, I thought he's just going to give me pills and, and I don't want that anymore. I really don't want to take stuff. And I had a close family member of mine who kind of went on an SSRI roller coaster and it didn't pan out well, even mm. though she was able to get off everything. So thinking of that, of course, there was the curveball where the psychologist I didn't resonate with and the, and the psychiatrist was somebody who really shifted the way I thought about things. You know, he... He understood that I didn't want to take medicine and, and um, he showed me, I think, seven studies on fish oil in the brain. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you can do this a different way if you want. And right. uh, that's when I started paying attention to diet mm-hmm. more and what I put into my body. Uh, and then from there, fighting was kind of the doorway for me to take care of myself because I knew in fight camp I wasn't going to drink. Mm-hmm. I had a, a couple different coaches that started working with me on how to quiet my mind in the fight. And of course, all those things translate outside of fighting, like breath work, mindfulness, things like that. And, um, you know, again, as I mentioned before the show, I had a, a boxing coach who was Mexican and Native American, and he would take me to the reservation to work with plant medicines in a way that uh, that I'd never been exposed to before, mm-hmm. you know, with respect and reverence and intention. And mm-hmm. that really started these big shifts in how I viewed the world and my life and, and was very empowering for me, mm-hmm. I think, going forward. Okay, so where are you now in your life right now? How do you, how do you feel in general? I think this is the best I've ever been um, on the home front with my family, and not just my personal family, my wife and and our son, um, with my my nuclear family, both mm-hmm. my parents who are divorced, my sister. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel really good, you know, with 
with all of my interactions with them. And when I go home and they're coming out, we're getting a house in a couple months, they're going to come out and help us move in. And uh, really looking forward to that. Work has been somewhat stressful. And I think I might have PTSD from my last job where I was fired in the 30K severance mm-hmm. that I was promised was not given to me. And okay. I was, you know, had all this panic about having to get a U-Haul, having to borrow money for a U-Haul to move back into my mom's garage, wow. which is where we had moved from. And that's where I spent most of my fight career, living in my mom's detached garage, mm-hmm. uh, working at a strip club on the weekends okay. to try to pay bills. And so that flash came through my mind like, shit, this is what I have to do now. Mm-hmm. And um, thankfully, as that door shut, the very next one opened and uh, I got the job at On It, where I work now and get to travel all over the place talking to brilliant minds like yourself. Thank you. And so I have a um, just a an excitement about life, you know, because it's fresh each time. It's not like I sit down and do the same shit every day and there's a lot of paperwork or any of that. I have a very cool job that allows me to to travel, to meet new people, to have interesting discussions. And then, you know, when I'm in the office, I'm 20 yards from a gym. On it is a gym as well. So I get to work out, I get to play, I get to do fun stuff like martial arts across the street. And Do you um, find yourself having found some contentment in your life? Oh, big time. Okay. Big time. Yeah. And that's another thing I think that the plant medicines have done for me fairly consistently is to give me a sense of contentment, to show me the things that I might not be seeing. Because I think, you know, mm-hmm. as with most people, I get consumed by what I don't have or what I want and the goal that's ahead and out in front of me. And and then if I'm in the state of wanting, I'm not in the state of joy and being of what I already have and what I'm already doing. And I think that is like a refresher course, the reminder for me to to appreciate everything that I'm doing and everything that I have. Including appreciating yourself. Yeah, big time. Uh, Okay. Big time. All right, perfect. So you want to know a little more about your brain and your psychology and all of that? <laughs> I most certainly do. <laughs> okay, l- let me start by showing you some of the tests. Um, the first test I'm going to show you is is purely cognitive stuff, meaning we're looking at uh, different aspects of your of your brain, and you're going to see that we measure different things. For example, this test here is measuring attention, right? So you can see that we did a test, the test was valid, and you can see that you have better attention than most people, okay? So attention is fine. We didn't find any deficits with attention. Was this the final test that I took? That had no, the, okay. this is probably one of the first ones you took. Okay. Yeah. Could it be a little impact of caffeine in this? Maybe a little bit, but not to bring you up to 70%, though. Uh, your ability to use what we call deductive reasoning was perfect, actually better than most. Uh, you're like the 90 percent percentile in comparison to other people your age. When you look at your ability to use verbal reasoning, again, you're at a 60%. That's pretty good. When you look at verbal short-term memory, it's normal, but in the lower range. And that's, that is probably some frontal lobe. This actually could be traced back to some of your head injuries. Okay. Mm. Even though it's in a normal range, you're somebody who has some special qualities in terms of cognition. So for you, it's low. Okay. Mm. Because you're going to see that most everything is in the higher level, right? Like your working memory. This is the RAM memory. If you were, if you're thinking of a computer, this is where you store stuff for short periods of time to bring it back if you need it. So it does work in fairly well. Uh, Episodic memory is excellent. 
Short-term memory, again, what it has to do with space is normal, but a little bit in the lower range, okay? Here's where you start seeing something low. So what is this? This is response inhibition, meaning your ability to not respond. You're very quick to respond. It's like if the brakes of your brain don't work very well. Mm. It's like you're very eager, right? And this may have served you very well in fighting. (laughs) (laughs) Be first, not last. (laughs) Exactly. So you're very quick, but by being very quick, you make a lot of mistakes, right? Mm. So there's a little bit of impulsivity, if you may, on, on your testing here. I noticed that with my financial decisions. Yeah. Then your mental rotation, meaning your ability to manipulate representations in your mind and come back with solutions, you had a, you, you were somewhat low there too. Uh, and those those were, I think, the only couple of things. Your, your visual spatial processing is perfect. Uh, your planning is very good. Your working memory, visually speaking, is probably a little better than your verbal short-term memory. Hmm. Okay, so that's actually pretty good. So response inhibition was an area where we had some issues, as well as your mental rotation, which is actually, if we were if I were to do this with a lot of large populations, we will always find something. So in general, your brain is working okay, except for the breaks of your brain. You have a tendency to impulsively react. Decision making is a little impulsive on that end. Okay, so let me open another test. This is actually your perception of your functioning, right? And you perceive yourself as doing fairly well, okay? In terms of attention, emotional regulation, flexibility, which kind of matches what we have, okay? Uh, We don't, uh, you actually don't recognize, this is the inhibitory control. This is the only one that didn't match with your report, okay? So you did have a little bit of problem with impulse control, but you're not consciously recognizing that. It just automatically happens to you, okay? Then we have, this is really fascinating. You're extremely smart. (laughs) This is actually your ability to problem solve, right? Which measures half of your IQ. IQ has two components, problem solving and verbal IQ. Mm. This is the verb. This is the problem solving. Normally, verbal IQ will be higher than this, right? So you score pretty high. You're scoring almost 130, so 127. So it's between 117 and 131, which is in the superior, the very superior range of intelligence. You're in the 96th percentile, and that's probably something that has allowed you to succeed. That despite all the stuff that's been thrown at you, including drugs and violence in the home when you were growing up and all of that, that's never been affected. Your smarts have always been there. Mm. So you're a good thinker. You're a good problem solver. That's always been there with you. So that's that's actually biologically based. You didn't make this happen. It just happened. Right? <laughs> so it's yours. So, okay. Uh. This actually matches what you just told us. This is your quality of life indicator. You're very, very happy with your life, okay? You see, when it comes to the range of satisfaction, dissatisfaction scales, you're pretty much on the right side, which is you're pretty satisfied with most aspects of your life, okay? Whether it's health, 
or play or learning, love, friends, children, home, everything, you you scored the lowest of the positive was on creativity. So that's yeah, I can explain why. Some of the examples were uh, hobbies like learning uh, to play guitar and okay. things like that. And those are things, I mean, I'm... I'm actually going to see one of my close friends, uh, Porangi, up in Sedona, okay. who's a beautiful musician. And okay. he gave me this Native American double flute. Mm. And I have yet, I've probably played it like 10 times. Okay. You know, so it's it's finding the time to do those things because I, I do care about them, but I'm not doing it. That's why I didn't score that highly because I haven't created the space to, to get creative. In terms of psychiatric symptoms, let me take you back up here. You're pretty normal. We didn't find any significant psychiatric symptoms, either physically obsessive, compulsive, depression, anxiety, hostility, psychoticism. I mean, everything is scoring pretty normal, which is kind of the middle here. So we don't have any concerns reported by you in terms of psychiatric symptoms, okay? Which is pretty good. Uh, this is another test. This is actually a little more complicated test. Um, this is one is actually specific for attention deficit disorder and impulse control. You see here, you have no hyperactivity. You see, you can stay right in the middle, okay? Uh, and for somebody who has impulsivity issues, it's, it's amazing to find that you're not restless, mm. right? You didn't have any restlessness during the testing, which is actually pretty good. I mean, like, for example, if I get a child who has attention deficit disorder, the kid's going to be, all, you're going to see squiggles all over the place here. Yeah, and for those who are just listening, if you watch the YouTube video, you're going to be able to see all this on the YouTube video. We got Ryan recording right now what we're mm -hmm. looking at on the screen here. And when we look at the attention, you see, your this is uh, attention and impulse control. You're scoring pretty normal on almost every, every, every one of the measures, right? So this test is not supportive of any attention deficit disorder or hyperactivity, okay? These are just technical things that I have to look into. Uh, attention span was pretty good too, so. So I wouldn't say that this test will be supportive of attention deficit disorder, okay? Now, let me show you your brain map. The brain map is kind of interesting. And that's what I'm going to show you. Um, the right side of the brain. Okay. Let's get this out of the way. And let's make it bigger. All right. Try to make it like that. All right. Right here. Okay. You can see here, you get in this slow brain. Well, let me let me orient you to this. Each one of these different columns it's a different brainwave. And when we measure brainwaves, we measure them from very slow to very fast, right? Mm -hmm. So you, we can see that this, there's some excessive slow wave activity on top of the brain here, okay? Everything that is in green, 
means that your brain and other people's brains of the same age are comparably equal, right? Okay. So there's a lot of green too, but you can see here, right temporal, no, left temporal and right temporal areas. Both of those areas are uh, showing excessive activity, right? So why is this important? Because, and you can see that the alphas are underrepresented because of this excessive high beta, right? So what this means is that the localization of this is going to be reflected in potential deficits. Even though in your particular case, the only deficits we find are some memory, which has to do with temporal lobes, and some response inhibition that has to do with the frontal part of the brain. Okay, So we can make a case and correlate some of your symptoms, especially related to head injury, to what happens in, um, uh, in the brainwave mapping. Now, if I take you down to a different part here, let me take you here. We actually run a concussion index, which is an acute uh, evaluation to see if your brain is behaving as if someone who just had a concussion, and the answer is no. You have a pretty good response, no evidence of recent concussion, right? So we kind of support it by the fact that you haven't yeah. had a concussion. But look at this. Let me see if I can make this a little bigger. This one is actually an analysis of comparing your brain to people who have sustained head injuries, right? The one on the left side. Uh, let me see. And you can see that it says that there's a 97.5% probability that you have sustained head injuries of moderate intensity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this matches your your life history, right? Yeah. So why is this important? Because we have several factors together here. One is the fact you've had multiple head injuries, the fact that your cognitive testing is actually pretty good, and that your intelligence is showing high levels, that you cannot afford to get hit in the head anymore, <laughs> right? That continued concussions could cause more problems. Now, you also have done a lot of healthy things over the years in terms of nutrition, you know, medications that, not medications, but natural substances that can allow your brain to recover, okay? Um, because if you want to understand the brain, you really need to think of it as the perfect computer. It's a big mess of fat with a lot of cables in it, right? And it's a computer that actually is pre-programmed from the time we're born, okay? It changes itself as we grow and adapts to the environment. So think about a computer like that, right? That is creating its own programs and then it changes the programs depending on what's coming from the outside and it's constantly changing. When I was in medical school in the late 70s, we were told that you're born with a number of neurons and you hope to die with the same number, right? I remember being told that growing yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. And that's not That's not the case. <laughs> yeah. We now know that the brain is always repairing itself. It's always changing. It's a constantly dynamic computer that is adjusting itself. It's making new connection. So if you lose a connection, you may make another one to, to a different pathway. It's really fascinating how that works and how that is actually the organ that allows you to adapt to different situations. So we have to treasure that little machine, right? Yeah. And if you think about it, I mean, it's, it's a very small piece of, I think it's a couple of pounds, uh, but it, use, it utilizes 20% of all your energy. 
Okay, so just to give, just to give you an idea how important the brain is. Okay, last but not least, I'm going to show you um, your psychological profile. Your psychological profile is actually pretty average, if you may. You can see here when we look at different types of personality patterns, and you see everything from here up has nothing to do with pathology, right? It has to do with our styles of dealing with, with um, uh, whatever life is throwing at us. Mm. So you have a tendency to respond to life in a very intense, we call it histrionic, very intense way. You can be loud, you can be intense, you can be um, um, somewhat um, reactive, if you may. Uh, so you have a tendency to show your emotions when you feel them quite intensely. Right? Oh, yeah, that's spot on. We also see that you just turbulent. I mean, you, your personality is intense. Uh, and there's a part of you, you see where it says you're antisocial? That it means that, and I wouldn't call it antisocial in your case, I would call it asocial. Uh, you can you can isolate empathy probably, meaning that you cannot show uh, regard for other people's emotions under certain circumstances, and that makes sense because you're a fighter, right? You had to be in front. We see this type of situation in a lot of military people, right? Where you're basically isolating empathy so you don't have to make yourself vulnerable, mm. right? So it's very difficult to be fighting with someone that you feel sorry for. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, that would be that would be almost impossible. So you have to block that, and you have the ability to do that. When we look at severe personality pathology, we didn't find anything there. And, of course, we didn't find any significant psychiatric pathology. We looked for anxiety, somatic symptoms, bipolar, persistent depression. We did find an elevated drug use that has more to do with your past, not with the present. You actually don't have symptoms of PTSD. They may feel like it, yeah. but you don't have the full-blown. And we all have some of that. We all have our own recollection of some events that were particularly uh, important in our lives that Actually, that might be more of a normal response, right? Mm. To bring the memory back so it can remind you of how and what kind of tools you have available to deal with that, right? Yeah. So that's a normal circuitry of of memory, if you may, okay? But again, nothing, we didn't find anything psychotic or major depression or, or schizophrenia or anything like that in your presentation. Of course, you didn't present with any of those symptoms, but the test is actually looking specifically at that. Well, that's good. So if I, if I had to make an assessment, and go, of course, you're not my patient, so we're doing this more for learning than mm -hmm. necessarily for treatment. Uh, you have a pretty balanced profile, okay? I mean, for someone who has sustained all the experiences you've had and you've come ahead of that, I think it's a tremendously encouraging presentation in terms of, Yes, people can change. Yes, people can do things differently. Yes, people can get into drugs and suicide attempts and all of that and come ahead. So that's the lesson from all of this. It's not necessarily what's wrong with Kyle, but how has Kyle utilized his own resources and the outside resources to 
allow himself to be functional mm. and adaptive and content, right? We always we always talking about happiness, for example, right? Happiness is a guy is is more like a big prize, right? That you get once in a while, but that's not a, a constant state of mind. Because my patients come here all the time and they're always saying, I want to be happy. Sometimes I say, well, I want to be happy too. (laughs) (laughs) But the reality is, why don't we move it down to content? Let's help you be content and then find happiness in certain aspects of your life. Because we're kind of chasing happiness as a goal. And that shouldn't be the ultimate purpose, right? Because at the end of the day, and, and, and these guys have heard me say this many times, you are going to bed with you every night and you wake up with you every morning. That is never going to change. Okay, that's one reality that is consistent, is always there. And we forget us, right? Sometimes we forget to stop and say, okay, what about me? Okay, what about me taking care of me the same way I take care of my daughter, the same way I take care of my wife? the same appreciation that I give to the people that I work with. So when you when you start thinking in terms of my job with me is as important as my job with others, that's when you start realizing, you know, I have to take care of myself. Yeah. Because if I don't have me, I have nothing, right? And again, you're going to have you until you die, right? Yeah, and only when you take care of yourself can you really put everything into taking care of others. Exactly. And and I, and I think that we socially and culturally are given a different message, right? Give, 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 take care of other people. You know, your reward is going to be later on. And I find people getting very angry about that because people are always asking, so what about me? And they're almost ashamed of asking the question, you know? Mm. How do I take care of me? So part of what we do here is to try to help people identify that they're as valuable as the others, you know, and that they can do for themselves so they can do for others and balance it out probably a little better. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys have a number of different things that you guys are doing here for treatments. Um, can you talk, dive into some of that? Yeah, we've always been at the forefront of trying to apply newer treatments. So, for example, since 2010, we've been doing transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, Let me tell you something about psychiatric treatments. A new psychiatric treatment comes into the market, and everybody wants to use it for everything, right? So it's like, okay, if I get this new tool, it should take care of everything. No, 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 no. Tools have specific purposes, you know. So transcranial magnetic stimulation is a very useful treatment for certain types of depression. And some people respond to it, some people don't. But it's an option, right? We talked about options before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I direct a ketamine clinic. We find ketamine fascinating in a lot of different ways uh, that I think goes beyond use the issue of treating depression, for example, or treating anxiety. Because we we do th- we believe that ketamine has a quality in repairing the brain. Mm. Okay, it's those those connections in the brain that are deficient, whether it's in PTSD or anorexia or depression, seem to change over time when you use ketamine. And now, some of the other hallucinogenic natural substances are being studied by NIH specifically because of that, that it goes beyond just 
reduce the reduction of symptoms, but repairing the brain itself. So that is really fascinating. Uh, so we do the ketamine uh, clinic. We do traditional psychiatric treatment. We have therapists who we provide mostly cognitive behavioral approaches. We refer a lot out for for other services. And we also do research. Uh, we're doing some research right now on ADHD children with aggression, trying to find out how we can bring that aggression down with certain new medications. We're doing an OCD trial and a new kind of fascinating quasi-psychiatric medication is not in the market yet, so we're doing that research. Uh, we're starting in a schizophrenia study with adolescents. I particularly like to work with kids. Uh, we I work in the hospital. We have a large group of us from this group that works in the hospital. So we have uh, 60 kids in a residential facility and another 35 to 40 in the acute care facility, a lot of suicide, uh, violent behavior, psychosis, I mean, serious illnesses. Um, psychiatric hospitals are not what they used to be 30 years ago. People just go in and out, mostly for the acuteness of the situation, and then we try to get them into other services. So so we have, we, we're multifaceted, if you may. We're always looking at what else is coming out, what is what else is new that we can provide to, to our patients. That's very cool. And yeah. you guys are, you're doing a lot of teaching, is that correct? Yes, I have a lot of students with me, which kind of keep me honest. Uh, students are tough, uh, but at the same time, they're, uh, they, they force you to, to be honest, right? Uh, and, and what I find and value the most on the teaching part is the ability to give them a more holistic perspective of what they're dealing with. I mean, psychiatry is one of those areas of medicine that has not gotten a lot of respect in medicine in general. It's always being kind of looked at as with respect and fear because, I don't know, people think that we read minds or something. <laughs> we don't. There's <laughs> a couple of questions about that. Yeah. Uh, but we understand behavior and people feel very threatened when you understand behavior because they think that you're trying to understand them all the time. But it happens with my friends too, though. I mean, if I go to a social situation, they're wondering, why is he looking at me? <laughs> is he analyzing me? Yeah. Put that should, notepad down. I said, no, I don't do, I only do it when I get paid, you know? <laughs> I'm not going to do it socially. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Um, where do you see psychiatry in general moving in the future? I, I think psychiatry is going back to understanding. I think that, um, Genetics is going to have a tremendous impact on understanding serious illness. I'm, I'm writing for a blog and I'm actually working on a paper that I need to get Vince uh, for a new blog that is coming up. And it's, it's actually in Spanish and it's going to be about uh, normal behavior versus abnormal behavior. And the problem is that culturally speaking, we tend to look at abnormal behavior as being psychiatric illness. Two different things. We all have abnormal behaviors that move us away from our values and your, our principles, okay? That's abnormal, but that's not necessarily pathological, right? Mm. But people will start wondering if there's something wrong with me because I'm doing this too much. So we always have to think that psychiatry and medicine in general is about how much and how often, right? How much of that do you have? How often is happening? And number three, how much is it affecting you? So we need to move away from 
boxing people into categories of illnesses, right, and provide more understanding. So I think I think that understanding is going to come back to psychiatry in terms of I'm not treating an illness, I'm treating a person. And this person happened to have an environment and happened to have functioning. And we have to see how illness makes them not adaptive and how we can help them be adaptive again. And instead of saying, okay, I want to take your symptoms away. But you see, that's no different than having pain, right? If you have chronic pain, you can say, well, take this pill and, and the pain is going to go away. No, the patient has to learn a lot of stuff, whether it's to live with some pain or to improve their functionality so they can feel that they have some control over their lives. It's too easy to take painkillers, sit on the couch and watch TV, right? No, we've seen that happen. Well, that's that's <laughs> Exactly. So 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 the whole process, whether it's pain, whether it's diabetes, whether it's obesity, whatever it is, it requires that we provide the patients with options and that we bring the patient as a partner, you know? Because I, I mean, I, I can tell you how many times, I cannot tell you how many times I have to tell people uh, or women or men, how many pills would it take for your husband to stop beating you up? I mean, pills don't do that and people yeah. get depressed because of that. But you have to look at the psychological and cultural issues. And and furthermore, I, th I think that we psychiatrists do a good job on not being judges, right? So not judging people is rule number one. You have to be as neutral as you can. Yeah. And, and, and it's not easy. I mean, sometimes you see things that are difficult to not judge, right? Yeah. Or to not have feelings about. But you still have to maintain focus on what you're doing, which is... The person in front of me is suffering and is dysfunctional, and how can we make that person suffer less and more functional? Basically. Yeah, I think that's a good rule of thumb for people in general. You know, if you want to be a good friend, it doesn't mean I'm going to diagnose and treat somebody, but if I'm to be of service to somebody as a friend or a partner or a husband or a father, it should start with non-judgment and just being there for that person in the best way that I can show up. The closest we can get to no judgment the better. I, I, I think that we we tend to judge because we're afraid. We, we tend to judge because we want to protect ourselves. Uh, we want to judge because we don't want to be part of something that is negative. Um, and, and again, as I said before, we, we get too much into why and too little into how. And when I, when I interview patients, I very seldom use the word why. Mm. More often I use the word how. How is this happening versus why is this happening? Because you, why forces you to judge. Mm. So how, how come is a more benign way of inviting people to express themselves than to ask why. Because when you ask why, you're asking for a judgment. Right? Yeah. That makes sense. Yes. Just simple details of training, right? <laughs> Thirty years in the game, yeah. Helps so that. That, that you kind of learn to uh, to listen, and 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 I think that the the listening, and the empathic understanding, and the not judgmental approach needs to come back to psychiatry a little more, and because psychiatrists now are being perceived more as uh, people who prescribe medications, you know, and that that's sad. Yeah. Uh, and 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 again, it's sad. 
not only because of the perception, but because a lot of psychiatrists feel comfortable there, right? That as long as I'm just writing prescriptions and making diagnosis, I'm doing my job. And I think our job is more complicated than that, you know? So understanding comes back as a consistent word, right? Yeah. And understanding that we can give back to people. I love it. Well, yeah. you're doing it all. And Vince tells me that you're uh, getting ready to start a podcast, both we're in gonna, Spanish we, and English. We're going to be starting a podcast, I think October 3rd. We're doing our first uh, recordings. And probably the following week, we're going to be going live. We're going to do one in, in uh, English called The Only You. And as you can say, I'm, I'm very focused on you, right? <laughs> helping people understand themselves and the other ones in Spanish called solo too so it's pretty much the same translation the same concept so that's awesome well I think this show will come out probably end of October or first week in November so this your podcast should be out we'll link to it in the show notes to drive traffic and get people to listen in really appreciate it yeah thank you so much for having me here great Um, is there a website people can find you obviously you're located in Arizona um where can people find you online yeah we have one that is the only you.net and the other one is solo2.mx so those are the two sites that we have and uh, of course we're going to be on instagram and youtube and and vince is uh, making sure that all those things happen so awesome uh, it's, it's a great uh guide well thank you so much Dr. thank you Patino. very much it's been Appreciate an absolute it. pleasure thank you Thank you guys for tuning in to today's show with Dr. Patino. I want to hear your thoughts around this. I definitely want to hear your thoughts around this. So please leave me a message at Kingsboo on Twitter or Instagram. And certainly check out my website, kingsboo.com, where you'll get my complete list of supplements by leaving your email and you'll get a monthly newsletter, including a welcome letter with everything that I'm into right now from the books that I'm reading, trip reports, anything that's been going on that's of value in my life, you'll be able to stay up to date on and you're only going to get one a month. You're not going to get bombarded with emails. I can't stand that shit, even if it's from people that I really love and enjoy. I got a lot of emails, and I'm sure you do too. But you're going to get just one a month from me, and it's going to be really the most powerful, meaningful shit that I've been into in that month-long span. Thank you guys for tuning in, and I'll see you in a few days.